What's going on, everyone? In this episode, we're actually covering three things. It's going to be awesome. We're kicking off with a discussion about how to analyze your product usage metrics to make sure that your customers stop quitting and stick around. From there, we're also going to talk about how to make a customer support system that like buys back your time, gets you out of the weeds so you stop drowning in support tickets and can focus on company building. And we're going to finish up with a question we cover how to make your first marketing hire, what kind of skill sets they need, and what kind of competence you need to build as the founder. So we're going to dive into all those things based on questions from our community. Let's dive in. I'm Johnny Page. I'm Matt Verlet. And this is the South County Podcast. What up, Matt Verlack? Are we recording? Are we on? Are we live? I don't know. Is this happening? I, I, I see a, a little red button blinking in the top left, so I'm going to go with yes. We're going to consider it live. Consider it live, we, Johnny Page. We are <laughs> in the lab that is the SAS Academy podcast, and we're chatting. It felt like it'd be cool to take a couple of the questions that our clients are asking right now in our communities to drop the question on the table, to chat about our perspectives, some of the conversation that's happening in there. And I'm curious to see where the conversation takes us. You cool if I pull something out of the mailbag and uh, get us in the deep end? Sweet. All right. So this question comes from Mitch. He asked, what's a good utilization rate of our users? We've identified four key metrics that if the users are doing these four things in their account weekly, they are likely seeing value and therefore less likely to cancel. Is there a benchmark out there that I can shoot for? I have a lot of thoughts. So first fist bump to this guy, because the fact that you have identified those four actions that need to be taken in order to have a customer who's likely getting value and not going to churn. That's the gateway to doing what we call like proactive churn prevention, proactive customer success. You know, we like inside of our academy program, we teach that with our member at risk monitor, right? Where you can like get a customer health score, red, yellow, green, and, and try to get ahead of it. So like, that's honestly the hard part is like figuring out with any degree of certainty what actions correlate to getting value and projecting retention. So sick, that's a great start. Here's the thing about benchmarks. More often than not, they're not that useful, you know, because there's a lot of questions that we won't have the answers to, like what's the stage of company, how many customers are we talking about, blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, what matters to me as a data guy, a lot less than how am I doing against some benchmark that someone said is good is just how am I doing week over week and month over month, right? So it's a yeah. lot more important to me, the trend and the progress. Are we moving the number in the right direction? So what I'm looking at is measure this utilization rate, right? And I would probably measure it as like a percentage of customers who have achieved all four of those things in a prior period of time, whatever period of time makes sense for the software. It could be a week or a month, right? So you figure out like these customers, have they done the four things within a certain period of time? And if that's true, they get a little check mark. And then what percentage of your active customer bases meet that criteria, right? So you might have a customer utilization rate of, you know, 57%. I could like tell you, oh, it should be 80, but I'm just making up a number. I don't yeah. care. Like what matters is if it's 57% and we get it to 59 and we get it to 62 and we get it to 70, like then we are bringing the customers in the right direction and making sure that the majority of our customer base is engaged. So yeah. I'll pause there. I got some other thoughts, but like, what about you? Like, how do you look at this kind of stuff? Yeah. I mean, the short answer, Mitch, is this has got to get better over time for you, for your company, yeah. like measure it now and keep paying attention to it over time. If I was in your shoes, there's two things that I would do. 
One, I start measuring as a percentage of my customers, how many of them have improved, like Matt said, or have are, are reaching this utilization rate. You want to see that percentage go up over time. That's how we know that our one-to-many systems are working, whether that is in-app prompts, whether that is our training that's administered to a customer success person, whatever we're doing to drive adoption, looking at the aggregate number makes a ton of sense and tells us, are we getting better at it? Is it effective? But then what I'd also do is I'd look at it at an individual account basis. And in fact, I did this when I was running Silvertrack. Once a month, we'd pull an account by account assessment and said, are we trending upward? We'd boil it down to one metric. So it sounds like there's four actions that are driving results for your clients, driving value. I'd try to figure out what is the one, like get it down to one, maybe two, just for simplicity's sake, helpful to anchor on one. And then we look at our customers increasing in that one metric. So for us, it was like reports created. The more activity they ran through our system, the more value they were getting. So we said, hey, we want to see it at least staying stable. So we said, if it's within 10% variance up or down, we know that's just a normal fluctuation of usage. But if it's a 20% gain, those are accounts I want to be focused on for expansion revenue. If it's a 20% decrease, those are the accounts I want to be focused on for churn prevention. So I I look at it not only as an aggregate, but on the account by account basis, and then just establish your own benchmarks. Like anything outside the company is just going to be comparing apples to oranges. Yeah. So when you did that with Silvertrack, I'm going to double click on that for a sec. Like, let's get to the the so that, right? It's like you have this data. How did that affect your CS team? Like, did you have like a monthly list of customers that needed outreach and you had anyone who's on the downward trend would get on a call list and your team would reach out to them? Or like, how did the team use that data? Yep. Yeah, we're trying to figure out why, we're, you know, so there's too many accounts for us to engage with one-to-one every month. So you're trying to figure out, you separate signal from noise. Mm-hmm. My customer success team is responsible for net revenue retention. So they can do that in two ways. One, stop people from canceling to offset it through expansion revenue. So they're looking for who can I upgrade and who can I make sure that I'm getting the early signs, you know, very hard to save someone once they send the cancellation email. In software, you're replacing a workflow. So either they stop using it, which means that work is happening somewhere else, not in your product, or they got to a point of adoption and then they decided that it wasn't going to work. And by the time you start to see decline in the product, they've already found an alternative solution. So we need those early signs of cancellation emails way too late. So they're looking at you know expansion opportunities and churn. They're just trying to get a short list of the 150, 200 accounts that they're managing. Who are the 15, 20, 30 that I can engage with this month to create those expansion revenue opportunities or help per- prevent the churn? I love it. So if you're thinking about this from like a, a data model standpoint, each account would have their score, whether it's a yes or no, or a, a number like you were talking about with your example, we'd also be able to see it across the customer base. The other thing that I wanted to offer up is as your customer base grows, like this isn't appropriate if you only have you know a few dozen customers, but as your customer base grows, it's also likely important to segment this out into cohorts based on like plans that they're on, right? So like how active are your people on your enterprise plan versus your mid plan versus your, you know, low budget plan kind of thing. Because the reality is like, yes, the data is like nice, but more, I always ask, like, we have data neat, like, what are we doing with it? Same question I just asked you, you would probably have like much tighter criteria and like a prioritization approach for your CS people, right? Where we see a usage decrease in an account that's worth 20 bucks a month, 
Maybe mm-hmm. we call them, maybe we don't. If we see that same decrease in account that's paying us $1,000 a month, better be on that phone tomorrow, yeah. today, right now, right? So like, I think it changes the acuity of the problem if you can segment yeah. it out based on customer value. Yeah, and it, there's tools you can get a lot more fancy with it, but like we were exporting all this into a Google Sheet and we had the yeah. MRR right next to it. So it's like, I sort first by MRR and then I sort by, you know, who has a variance positive more than 20% who has a variance negative 20% and I'm, you know, I'm starting at the top of the list and I'm working my way down. Yeah. That's awesome, man. I love it. Yeah. Any other nuggets on like just thoughts on customer segmentation or measuring activity in the platform? I think we've touched on it. You know, it's, I get the four down Mitch, I get the four down to one, look at it on an ongoing basis, get better at it. Your product team owns the one to many or you, whoever's the company-wide metric for adoption, what percentage of our clients have reached this point of adoption or meeting these four criteria, that is owned by your product, your development team. Your customer success team owns the individual account level and then get an aggregate. So I take this, break it up to each account, account manager, what percentage of their client base is or, you know, reaching this point of adoption and achieving these value metrics and manage you have two attacks, the one-to-many and the one-to-one. I'd make yeah. sure both are feel like they're responsible. And if I over-engineer responsibility across the team, like I'm more likely to see that number improve over time. So that, that is that, a gem, what you just said. It applies to so many situations. Over-engineer responsibility, and you're more likely to see. What do we call this in, in our company? Every hand on every steering wheel, right? It's uh, yeah. It's a good philosophy, man. Yeah, yeah. I want everyone building. I've said many times in our in our revenue team meetings. I want marketing building a plan to you know book a million dollars a month. I want sales building a plan to book a million a month, and independently without any support of the other. And if we both come together yeah. and we all hit plan, we got a very happy happy month or quarter. Yeah. So, no yeah, doubt. can't have one single point of failure. Product usages is shared and owned across the organization in products development and customer success. So take this one metric, split it up, make sure everyone understands what it means for them that that metric drives action. And I think you, you're you onto something here, Mitch. Keep up, keep up the good work, man. Cool. Can I give Mitch one last thing to think about before we, uh, before we call it a day on this question? I don't think that anyone's going to kick us out. So yeah, fire away. I, <laughs> I guess not. And I say this because I've done this wrong in the past. Don't assume that your metrics of today are going to be the right metrics tomorrow. I recommend looking at this on a quarterly basis. And what you're specifically looking for is like right now you have this hypothesis, this correlation, right? That when all these accounts do these four things within a certain time window, they're happy. And let's assume that that's true. Make sure that it's true next quarter and three quarters from now and a year and a half from now, right? Just look at it every calendar quarter. And just what you're looking for is, do I have a big percentage of customers that by the data were happy and getting value, but still churned? And if you find that you're losing the correlation between what you think signifies a happy customer and what the lagging indicators like the churn metrics are telling you, you might need to go back and tune that because like, dude, your steady shipping features, your customer base might be evolving. You might be getting out of the early adopters into the primary market as your company's growing. I promise you one thing count on it changing. It will change. Right. And so I just, I don't want you to like chisel it into stone. It should be one of those things that as you lead into quarterly planning, like just make sure you're still pointed at the right goal because it's a lot easier to figure that out before it's on fire. Right. So just quarterly touch point, make sure that the things you're measuring are still correlating to the outcomes that you want. That's the last thing I would just put in your back pocket. Yep. Great point. All right. Johnny Page, next question from Ryan is, like he's an early stage founder, right? And he's trying to wear 
46 different hats. We've both been there. You kind of know the drill. And he's writing code. He's actually building the product. He's doing some sales stuff. And what he's finding is that as he's starting to get customers, he's drowning in in customer support tasks. And he feels like he doesn't have a system around like, how do I actually deal with these customer requests? He feels like he's starting from square one every single time. And it's like robbing from his time with his family and robbing from the time he needs to write code. And so his question is just like, how do I approach in the early days of a SaaS company, initially standing up a customer success function? What do I need to build? Is it systems? Is it people? And how do I prioritize it? So I mean, I know you got a, a heavy CS background. So I wanted to throw this one out here and just kind of Get your thoughts. If you're if you're starting again, like where do you begin? Yeah, man, I love this question. That I would say there's a couple different buckets of these support tasks or inquiries are gonna fall into. So the first is their how-tos, right? So mm-hmm. it's because they have they have a lack of training. And so we're we're training through, you know, asynchronous support in the inbox. The second one is there's something that actually has to be done by a developer. Like, hey, can you import this? Or, hey, this you know bug is happening, whatever it is. So I'd separate the two. And your quickest path to resolution is to focus on eliminating or ticket deflection for the first half, the how-tos. Mm-hmm. So every time you answer a support question, take a little bit more time. In the early days, it doesn't have to be fancy. You can shoot a quick Loom video and then put these in a public place that people can access them. Or if you're too hesitant to like publish a help center, you can just keep them for yourself so that what used to be a 10, 15 minute reply is now a one minute reply and that you've, you take the video you previously recorded, hey, this should help and send it out. So you buy back a lot of your time there by eliminating the how to's. For the dev tasks, this is just going to be a, a process of like dump, chunk, and sequence. Figure out where are the trends, and I've got to work through these in a way that I need the, the first domino to fall to be the one that buys back the most of my, amount of my time so I can you know, continue this forward march of where the product needs to go. So it's just a matter of prioritization. You got to resist the urge. What is it? Eisenhower's matrix of like urgent versus important. Like yep. you're going to have to be working on the important ones and just get good at saying, Hey, not right now. If that you're getting requests and, and stuff in there, that is just not the priority. Got to play the long yeah. game on those, on the dev fixes. How about you, Matt? How would you, yeah. How'd you work through this? Similar. I think that I'd have a stronger opinion personally on the, I don't think not building a help center is really an option. Like if I were if I were coaching a founder, I would come on a little bit more strong from my point of view, especially like now in 2023, almost 2024, like AI enabled help center tools, you know, a lot of the stuff that Intercom's doing and all the similar tools like that, the ROI that you get on your time from creating the help documentation is massive, right? Because you can like chuck the chat bot into your software. And then when the customer asks the question, like it'll actually analyze the question that the customer asks and proactively surface the help docs that should have the Loom videos in there. So it's just like so many SaaS companies, they start out by like doing services or agency work or stuff like that. It's like the difference between selling your time and building a product, right? One of them has leverage, one of them has none. Creating a help center is a huge amount of leverage, especially when it's like supplemented with some of these AI tooling solutions that are out there. It's an incredible amount of leverage versus just doing the same thing over and over again. It's like your trigger for this is if you answer the same question one time, answer it forever, 
shoot the video, like Johnny said, which I love. And the tweaks are very simple to do the video. What you don't want to do is like, hey, Johnny, thanks so much for writing in. The way I would do this, I'm going to pull up Johnny's account and show all his data. Like, don't do that. Look at what Johnny's actual question is. And then your video is, hey, this video is to talk about how to achieve blah, 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 blah in my software. First thing we do is go over here, just walk through the process, transcribe it, make a help doc, and build a system that actually uses technology to put leverage into your life. So I don't know, for me, I'd put my foot down a little harder and be like, you got to build this because it takes you, once you do the initial setup, it's only an incremental additional like time investment to solve it in a way that will continue to serve you over and over again and actually get you out of the weeds. So that's my first thought. Yeah, call it just in time delivery. We're building yeah. the help center is not a project that we go. We say, hey, we're going to go document every part of our product. You know, we're just going to buy requests. Each individual ticket that comes in, we're going to think about: is this a one-off? Do I expect for this to happen again? Let me take an extra five minutes to answer it and build that help center that will deflect tickets and provide customer satisfaction. Like people actually don't want to wait for the reply. Like they'd right. rather help themselves. It's a better customer experience to have the answers there. So, you know, take the extra five, 10 minutes, record the video. It doesn't have to be high production way, way down the road. You can get into a HubSpot style knowledge base and Academy where it's like high production yeah. videos and courses on, on how to use your product and, and the workflows behind it. But early days, it's like, just it's functional. It's better than nothing. Amen, dude. I, dude, there's a a number of like like Series A venture funded companies where I'm either a customer, I know their founders, and their help center to this day is like a Notion page that's set to public with a bunch of videos in it and some paragraphs. And yeah, but it works because I can go in there and solve the problem. Like you nailed it, Johnny. They don't want to talk to you; they just want yeah. the answer to their problem. So if you can give them the answer to their problem faster, it's great. And I'll do one thing: like I'll walk through a framework really quick that I've implemented in a couple of companies that that serve really well for this. It's the the concept of having different tiers of support requests and because different tiers require different actions. So I had something called a tier zero, which is exactly what we're talking about, which is when you get an inbound help request and it's intercepted by the system you did, right? And so like mm-hmm. celebrate the hell out of those tier zeros, right? Because that's literally things that would have been work that are no longer work because of the system. They're beautiful, right? Tier ones are the how-tos that you can't solve with the help desk you reduce your number of tier ones by two things. One, making your product easier to use and two, building a better help center, right? So it's like, as you build the better help center by answering the tier ones with the videos, more of those should turn into tier zeros and they should be handled by the help center you built. And then to your point, the things that require a developer or like, you know, serious bugs or a developer to go do some work, typically if those keep popping up and they're the same things over and over again, they should end up on the roadmap as something that needs to be solved either with a feature that's external or or set of like better internal tooling to let people who aren't software engineers do that work. We had a, in my last company, we had a full six week cycle, you know, so like three, two week sprints dedicated to just building internal tooling to resolve all of the random CS requests that needed a developer to do. Our yeah. CTO, we nicknamed him the the ninja because he was really good at writing code. And so we titled that cycle, that six-week cycle, it was Free the Ninja. And all we did was internal tooling yeah. for a month and a half. And dude, let me tell you who was happy, everyone that wrote code, because they were not having to do these time-sensitive things. They're getting back to building. So yeah, the, the key there, though, is... I've met a lot of developers that love to build. They build the shit out of those internal tools. They get used like once or twice. So like do it after there is a lot of pain, yeah. high repetition. Like we know we're going to need to do this forever. Like a yeah. lot of you developers, this guy who is a coder and he's doing sales, I guarantee he likes coding a lot more than he does selling. He's spent a lot more time selling. So, hey, hold off on the internal tool. 
do it manually a hundred times. Yeah. And then when you know you're going to have to do it another hundred times, go build the tool, but don't Agreed. hide behind the keyboard, get out there and sell. Like tomorrow's not guaranteed in an early stage startup. Like the, the end of the runway can come very quickly. So revenue is, is the life blood of the company. And if you get too attached to those internal tools, you might have a great product and no, no money. Yeah, no doubt, man. That's really good feedback. Agree. So like to sum this up, because we went through in a couple of places, right? To sum it up, figure out how to organize the different requests, right? I think you and I both approach that in slightly different ways, but figuring out which ones require developers, which ones are how to's. I think the common thread here is take the time to build the system, shoot a quick video. Don't make it sexy. Don't produce it. Don't edit it. Just shoot it, put it somewhere, make it searchable, build the thing that's going to give you leverage, and then only invest in internal tools when you know there's a clear need and that it's actually going to save you time, not just because you like building stuff. But there are situations where it is worth it. So then you take those three things. And hopefully that's enough, Ryan, to chew on and fix your support problem. So yeah, love the question. Awesome. Awesome. What do we got next? Next one is from Dan, and you're going to love this. So another early stage founder, same 46 hats on, right? Trying to do his thing. And he's currently a, a one person show in the marketing department of his company, right? And he's trying to figure out, and he's like on the precipice. I've seen other founders make a mistake. I won't spoil it. We'll talk about it. But his question is, how do you go about building a marketing team? Like, who do you hire? Is it somebody at the top? Is it somebody to like go do some jobs? What do I do? That's his question. How do we go about building the team? Cool. Well, I'd start by asking him to clarify which channel they're going after. Like, you know, the if you are a small team, you have to pick a single channel. We're going to own that channel, do it really, really well. We can be incredibly ineffective if we go too wide. We can work really hard. It's the ultimate, I don't know how vulgar we want to get here, but it messes with your head if yeah. you go too wide because you work your ass off and then no production happens. So the first thing I'd say is we got to pick one channel. And then on that one channel, I would go find someone who loves this stage. There's lots of growth hackers, growth marketers that like wearing all the hats. They've got a little bit of copy background. They've got design background. They can produce video if they need to. They can design a web page if they need to. And they like figuring things out. And they exist. There are people who are just as qualified and exceptional high performing at large stage companies are people who just love the thrill of the early stage. So I go find a growth hacker that, that likes owning the full stack and get in there. That is, if you can get away with, if you are going to wear the marketing strategy hat, I'd say go find the freelancer to get the job done, get the channel set up and and you be the person that pushes the volume to it, whether it's like running ads, managing the budget, whether it's cold email, cold call, whatever it is, organic content, whatever channel you choose, you either hire someone for the execution, full stack, your growth marketer that can can tinker and, and put the volume through it, or you hire freelancers to get the channel set up and then you put the mm-hmm. volume through it. Yeah. So I, I agree, but there's one thing I want to clarify. Like I mostly agree. My approach for this is usually a bottom-up build is what I call it, right? And like that mistake that I alluded to earlier is, you know, I've definitely seen a decent number of founders just say things like, huh, I have a marketing problem. I don't know marketing. I'm going to go find someone to own marketing. And then I never have to worry about marketing again. And the reality, and look, I know I'm opinionated, it's cool, but I am of the opinion that in the early 
days of the company as the CEO founder, it's your job to become at least entry level competent in all of the key six disciplines of a SaaS company, right? You or the co-founding team, right? It doesn't mean that you're going to be the best salesperson in the world or like a savage Facebook ads extraordinaire, but you should know your way around it until there's someone to go do the job. And so I think that the thing that I don't love is that I've seen some founders, and I'm not saying this is, you know, Dan, who wrote in this question, I'm just talking in general, some founders will stay arm's length at a certain skill because it'd be like, oh, I don't know how to sell. So I'm not going to worry about it. I need a VP of sales. Like, yo, you have three customers, you don't need a VP of sales, you might need to go learn how to sell, you might need to go put in some reps and figure it out. And like, do enough selling to make sure that people want your product and make sure that you have a scalable, repeatable channel and the price point works and all of those things. And then go bring in an SDR to set for you. And then maybe bring in an account executive to do calls that you can oversee. And when you have four people on the team, then maybe you need someone to be in charge of them, right? And so I think- Why, why, Matt? What's the proxy? What does that give you? If you become entry-level competent, what does it give you? Why? So two things. A, it- lets you, I don't know what the right phrase is, so I'm just going to call it like I see it. It gives you a decent bullshit detector. Yeah, right? that's what I was like, you two words, right? I'm like, good. yeah, you just basically have to be good enough to smell bullshit. Yes, because like, man, I've seen people to like hire some like CMO, like first off, I got news for you, a good CMO isn't coming into a company that's doing $100,000 a year unless they own half of it. Like, so anyone who's worth the title probably isn't playing that game. And so like, so yeah. the reality that matters would be like, oh, I got the CMO, and then you're, they're literally just talking for six months about why things aren't working. And, and the, the founder doesn't know enough to smell the bullshit. And all of a sudden, you're six months down range. And the opportunity cost is insane. It's massive, right? So like, yeah. you got to be good enough to know what's wrong, even if you don't know what's right. And you need to be able to be good enough to set expectations that you're confident are realistic enough to hold the line on. Yeah, there's a couple ways to do that, though. So I'll give you a real world example. The first time I hired someone to run paid media, I did yeah. not understand media buying on all the ad platforms well enough to be able to smell bullshit. So I found another consultant and I asked him to be part of the hiring process. And I said, Hey, I'm going to make a decision on this. I don't know it very well. I went to someone who was top of the market, who like the market had shown they had tons of reps that hired lots of people in this area. They knew how to smell bullshit. And I used yeah. them to say, Hey, do I have the right person or not? And we went through a couple with scoping calls to say, what is this person supposed to be doing here? And that can help you if you know your desired outcome of the hire and you don't know how to tell if they are good or not, so you have to do this all the time if you're a non-technical founder to go hire a technical team. So like right. I don't I wouldn't say that like there are benefits to it. And if your interests are there, there are benefits to getting in and building the the skill set to be you know competent in the area. But it actually like it's funny, Matt, we coach across the full spectrum of leadership. And the very thing that we're talking about now that is helpful at the early stage is actually the Achilles heel for, you know, founders that are like running five million, ten million dollar companies because they know too much. They are practitioners and they don't lead their teams. They love strapping on the cape and be the person that does the project. So if you can avoid it, like when you know, having worked with so many of those founders, when you said, Hey, go get entry level competent, I'm like, well, maybe if you like it and you think you're gonna play in that area long term, like definitely Go where it produces energy and where you can add value. But if you hate doing sales calls, just find someone that knows higher grade sales reps and help them, ask them to help you make the hire. It's interesting though, like, especially in sales, I don't know if I'm behind like a totally hands-off founder in sales. Like it, it doesn't mean you need to be selling 
but I think you need to be close to that process for a lot of reasons, right? But namely, like your sales team is the tip of the spear in the market, and they're the ones who should be surfacing the right insights and figuring out like why we're winning deals and losing deals and how the market's reacting and the whole nine yards. And so I just, I mean, like I'm not naturally a salesperson, but like I learned enough to be dangerous where A, I could like do all right, but more importantly, B, I could stay close enough to the game where I knew what was happening and be able to like help steer the ship with my CEO hat on in my prior company. Yeah. Even if I wasn't like, oh, I'm a better rep than you. Like, yo, I wasn't. I was worse than every one of my AEs on a sales call, but I knew enough to have these conversations and and help guide them, you know, in certain ways. Yeah, I took us into deep waters using the sales example because this founder-led sales is the last hat to hand off. And we it's a whole yeah. nother episode. Like on the founder journey, when you gotta wear all the hats, what we've seen through hundreds of clients going through SaaS Academy, what's the right order to take those hats off? But getting back to the marketing side, if you don't know it, find someone that does and help them help you make a good decision. Yeah, for sure. Cool. All right. Well. Dan, I hope that helped. Awesome. That's a good question.